0: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Well, it's grand to have you back. I hope you're all doing well, fed and fathered over Thanksgiving like in our household in New Jersey this holiday. And it gets us off to a lively, and dare I say, a jolly start as we prepare for the coming Christmas season. I have a special treat this episode. It is a recording of my recent talk at the lovely Library of the Chathams in Morris County, New Jersey, where I extolled the promises of the American Dream and recalled our journey from our native Ireland to the United States, and my career in journalism. This is an edited version, but you will pick up the fine threads. Chatham Library is an incredible facility with a dedicated and superb staff who recorded my talk and managed to bump off a few Zoom bombers. There was a lively attendance at this in-person event, and many of you joined via Zoom. We'll play my talk in a wee moment. But first, I want to tell you about a remarkable guest who is coming up next week to tell us about his new book for Christmas, The Beggar and the Blueboard. He is Anthony Stefano, who is also a television host and activist who has written five best-selling books, including A Travel Guide to Heaven. We had a free-flowing conversation and great talk. Anthony is originally from Brooklyn, and one of his teachers at high school was the late Pulitzer Prize winner Frank McCourt. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. You know, it's uh, it, it is a Christmas book. Actually, I have two Christmas books out. One of them is more more religious, called Joseph's Donkey. And it's about Saint Joseph, but uh, this one is a kind of a, a modern-day Christian fairy tale. I would describe it as it's about a uh, a little bird whose flight southward for the winter mm-hmm. it keeps getting delayed because of the re- the strange requests of a local street beggar. This beggar asks him to go on various errands of mercy. He asks him to drop bread off to a homeless man and uh, uh, money off to a widow with orphans and and a little gold cross. Off to a, a boy in the hospital, and it was a, as a result of performing these errands of mercy, the bird gets uh, stuck in a, a snowstorm, a blizzard, and all seems lost uh, until a surprise ending, which I think we could, I think we can give away here. Okay, uh, I mean to- you have a good a YouTube promotional yes. trailer, which people can go and watch too. It's beautifully made, and uh, also the artwork on your book is beautiful. Somebody uh, special did that for you. That was Anthony DiStefano, and you can listen to my full interview with him next week. Coming up in a wee moment is my recent talk at Chatham Library in New Jersey. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water Well, I just had a terrific time giving my talk recently at the Library of the Chathams in Morris County, New Jersey. We had a very engaged audience in attendance and more following on Zoom. It began with my early years as a journalist in my native Ireland for the Longford News and tells of our decision to emigrate to America and why. You'll hear about my memorable encounters with the family of the late actor Carol O'Connor and my coverage of Bernard Madoff. Yes, I said Bernard or Bernie Madoff. I talk about my many stories in national publications and more. And ultimately, I defend the American dream. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne extraordinary provincial newspaper was printed and available on newsprint it sounds hokey to say that now because newspapers as we know them today come in two forms obviously print and online but there was only a print edition of the longford news like all newspapers back 30 40 years ago and not and even in more recent times but to be more precise the Langford News was published using linotype hot metal typesetting machines. <laughs> Offences for drinking after hours in the local pub with the school headmaster, local Gael, Gaelic sports, county council meetings, brilliant academic achievements in the local schools, local arts and drama news, calls for the sanctification of the local population, heroic tales of Langford people, and genuine stories of religious doing courageous work abroad in the missions or closer to home. Then there were stories about a lame dog run over in the road by a local politician. (laughs) I won't give you too much details. (laughs) Um, So I hope you're getting some of the drift. It was a mixture of the highbrow and lowbrow. Before I took the job offer to work at the splendid Langford News, published and edited by the world-class Derek Cobb, with photography by William Farrell and reports and columns by John Donlan and Eugene McGee and others before and after me. This. I was told by one informant that I was joining a superb and fearless and reputable newspaper. Great. I need that. I need a challenge in life. I, I want... A person with energy, a passion. My informant then went on to mention something to me about. I keep mentioning it because you probably think Irish oh, we make up these fibs and everything. Not, this, I, my stories are genuinely true. Reports of attempts by some angry, a petrol bomb over the fence of the garden of someone tied to the Lancashire News over what that angry petrol bomber regarded as fake news in the the News have threatened to publish. Literally wanted it. They said, we're running your story. And says, will you do that? And I hope you've got insurance on in the house. OK, I said, I'm game. That's my kind of newspaper fearless, impartial, world class. Stand up to the bullies. If the Longford News did once run a highly controversial, yet very funny and chock full of fun column, it was called Town Improvements. Why did they call it Town Improvements? No, it wasn't about statues going up on the main square or about improvements in Town Hall or, or in addition to the local library or, you know, it was something uniquely different and human. Town Improvements was essentially um, write ups of local characters, less than the serious or people who had maybe ill, people of ill repute who had decided to leave Longford in those. Darker times to, for London and the US. And, you know, we'd see the back of them and people said, Good riddance to Jack O'Brien. We, we don't want to see him again. So his name was noted on the town improvements column as a town improvement. <laughs> now, I want you to recall that this was a very popular newspaper, printed the old fashioned way before it eventually moved to the digital age. And when street lighting in every town in Ireland was still not common. One night back in the, the pre digital era, the venerable founding publisher, Vincent Gill, was putting the newspaper to bed when something very odd occurred. What could that be? It could be knocking the door, or somebody coming in, liquored up or something. No, don't forget about those things. Instead of a full and complete newspaper laid out, in linotype style, with photos on the front page, If you can imagine that it, it was all—it was very manual then. So literally, they would have to even—it um, it was like hot metal, essentially. You know, they would even the type would be laid out in hot metal. So if there was a typo, you would take out—you'd have to reset one of those lines and go back in. And these big machines the, in the in the back rooms would be. There was no photo. In the spot where it was supposed to be on page one, literally there was a black mask. Oh my God. They had two minutes to go, and they were screaming like hell to get this, the paper to bed, as they say. And Vincent Gill, you know, rubbed his little beard. Rice smiled whimsically and in his face. You know what, guys? Don't worry, leave it black and just put a little caption underneath Granard at nightfall. <laughs> it's a true story. Not sure if any copies of that issue still exist, but it was the Longford equivalent classic headline in 1983. Can anybody but it was nobody's going to guess. Headless body and topless bar. That was the classic <laughs> headline in the New York Post. <coughs> <It's> brilliant. <coughs> Conceived and proposed by the late Vincent A. Mosetto, who, by the way, has a local connection. He was born in New York. I never met him. Apparently he had assessed, and he, he insisted that headline go in. There's a whole history behind that, and he was on the late show with whoever, Johnny Carson or whoever was the host back then. He became an institution himself, as did the headline. So when I think of the New York Post's famous headline, and the headline once infam- infamously voiced it on the Longford public, I kind of get a chuckle of relief uh, with the Roy's similarities. As you know, I am a contributor for the New York Post, where I have written extensively for many years on topics of human and business interest. This historic headless body headline may have been the only way for some to grieve a truly horrendous and awful tragedy in Queens, New York this is where it gets interesting. As the Post once recalled, the headline expressed with unflinching precision the city's accelerating tailspin into an abyss of atrocious crime and chaos. That's deep. (laughs) For me, anyway. (coughs) But it didn't sit well with folks of, dare I say, a more prim and proper name. According to an account of this headline drama, the late legendary New York Post Metropolitan editor, God bless you, Steve Dunleavy, countered when people criticized the headline. What should we have said? Decapitated cerebellum in tavern of ill repute. <laughs> the New York Times came close with owner of a bar shot to death, suspect is held. OK, good night, New York Times. But like the New York Post, the Longford News also had a serious, intelligent and well-deserved reputation for excellent writing, excellent reporting and well-informed pieces, which explains why its staff who laboured in love at the Longford News went on to excel in national media careers. One of the former staff decided to emigrate. Yours truly, uh, the American dream. The word emigration didn't exactly stick in my craw, nor did my wife and I resist the lure of the American Since Ireland was then in the absolute throes, was rapidly going down the tubes, and we were not going to be its next victims, swallowed up whole. Thousands like us were also headed out of Ireland, many for good. We had tons of friends and relatives in America, aunts and uncles and dozens of cousins everywhere from New York City to New Orleans and sure weren't the streets of America paved with gold? We can't go wrong. As they would say in Ireland we'll give it a lash and honestly and frankly it was one of the best decisions we ever made. Just let me tell you a wee story here. One night the battery of our jalopy of a beaten up car This car was an open invitation for a carjacking, since the doors never locked, (coughs) went dead cold. Sure, look, I said to myself, some kind fella here in the streets of Queens will stop with his jump leads. Well, this fella did finally show up on a cold December night, pulling up beside me with a demonic grin. Five dollars and I loaned them to you, sir, he said. Inflation adjusted that today must be 20, 30, or 40 dollars. Could be more. I saw inflation is running at 6.2% today. Maybe it's more. Beans and rice for the next three days. <laughs> I can only recall an obscene charitable amount of car assistance if your car broke down on the road in Ireland. Anything from a push to the nearest garage to some farmer towing you away with his tractor, especially with the kind of cars I drove in Ireland. So we had come to this jaw-dropping, immense and fast-paced New York City where everyone was in a hurry to somewhere, whether it was to the dry cleaners, work, home, church, bars, restaurants, bathroom, restaurants, malls, the old Shea Stadium. Anybody remember that? Now City Fields? They were going somewhere and we often thought of home, but we never looked back. There was something special, raw, enchanting and exciting in New York and an America full of opportunity and great promises. For every Scrooge or penny-pinching scoundrel, there were saints and scholars and strangers coming out of nowhere, out of the blue, dropped in from heaven. To surprise you with favours, openings, and introductions, oh, the New York bug eventually bit us hard. My wife Margaret and I, who is here tonight, which uh, Nathan Aisling and a few others and Andy, mm-hmm. both held various jobs in the early days to get our feet firmly on the ground in New York. Yet, I never immediately realised its significance at the time, But my first newspaper break in New York was for a ethnic publication known as the Irish Advocate, published and operated by the mom and mother, by the uncle and mother of the late actor, Carol O'Connor. It was one of those serendipitous moments. We had lived around the block from the O'Connor's newspaper, which was tucked inside a dusty travel agency, operated by Carol O'Connor's Mama Lees on Woodhaven Boulevard in Queens. But one thing, it was a huge institution among the Irish-American community all over, all over, really, and even outside the country. The O'Connor's took a shine to me for some reason and were warm people genuinely. Perhaps it was my ability in mid-afternoon to knock back at Lassa-Jemison Middle East as we put some of the finishing touches To the latest edition of the Irish Advocate, Elise would always proffer the Jemison. I had my own column, and I was a big shot already, enjoying a delicious toxic a delicious toxic shot each afternoon. We never ran that headline "Headless Body in Topless Bar" though at the Irish Advocate. A side note, by American standard, we, you know, we had limited television service in much of Ireland before we headed for America. So I was never personally aware of Carol O'Connor's huge fame and fortune in Hollywood. I'd heard about him, though. And, but I later learned he had some literary kit and kin, born and raised in Ireland, including the late writer and columnist Ulick O'Connor, who was not only a brilliant wordsmith, but something of a pugilist if you got him, or as they would say in Ireland, if you got a rise out of him. From the Irish Advocate, I eventually moved to the Irish Echo and then to the Irish Voice when I decided to go mainstream, taking jobs during various periods of time on staff at Securities Industry Daily, McGraw Hills Securities Week, and then later at Traders Magazine where I eventually was promoted to editor, succeeding the very brilliant Michael Scotty. I also began to freelance and then ended up sending pieces and having them published widely in the New York Post, Wall Street Journal, National Catholic Register, Institutional Investor, and many other publications. My immersion into the securities industry was in part A baptism by fire. Though, frankly, I was always intrigued by Wall Street, especially when I heard that New York, the streets were paved with gold, metaphorically at least. And I had acquired some rudimentary basics on its complex operations and always kept pace with news and the economy, you know, regularly reading the Wall Street Journal. But I learned lots in my early career covering Wall Street. And this is where it gets interesting. Much later, again metaphorically and mathematically this time, exi- exhibit number one. <laughs> this is the cover story I did for Trailer's magazine on Bernie Madoff. So you can pass it around, just hold the character. But that was, that was what we did. And I'll just give you some background on Bernie, who I knew quite well. He was certainly an intriguing and... Um, I'm going to try to come up with some charitable wor- words later that fairly describes his personality. We have to remember, Bernie Madoff was a hot shot on Wall Street, mm. deeply respected by every, trusted. It's an important word, trust. And then we, that trust broke down. He was a big shot in Nasdaq, head chairman of the board. He was the go-to guy if we didn't understand how a security traded or exchanged hand or all these weird terms that, Electronic trading systems and derivatives and stocks and bonds. Oh, my God. I'm just still off the boat from Ireland and my head's reeling. Tell me, Bernie, how this works. And Bernie would share his, he would give you lessons. He would give you lessons, but not the lessons, the other ones we read about. (laughs) So that was the cover story I wrote for Traders Magazine some years before Bernie Madoff was caught on serious charges of securities fraud. So the headline of that is pretty interesting, which is going to be, thank you, thank you very much. The, the headline is interesting if you, if you actually kind of studied it. Yeah. So Bernard made up Investment Security, spent four years and millions preparing for the months ahead. One word sums up growth expectations. Unprecedented. He was getting huge returns uh, in that business that we did our story for. and um, So I had the distinct opportunity to interview Bernie and his brother Peter, charming people. I liked them a lot. We bonded, we we really bonded, and I knew his family. And So I wrote a story in retrospect, a glowing piece about his business. In many ways, the headline was prescient because it kind of foreshadowed the terrible fate that was to befall the Madoff empire. Quote, Bernie Madoff, the well-known Wall Street investment advisor, Became world famous for operating possibly the largest Ponzi scheme ever known on the planet. When the FBI and the SEC finally uncovered the massive fraud in 2008, losses by Madoff's investors were estimated at more than 50 billion over the course of nearly two decades. Unquote. Bernie. Madoff, now deceased, was sentenced to 150 years in prison, essentially for life. Two observations. The Madoffs operated two distinct businesses. One was the highly successful and legitimate, as far as we know, market-making business. The second was the source of Bernie Madoff's pride and fall, his wealth management business, albeit his Ponzi scheme. Our cover story in Traders Magazine was really about the Madoff's market-making operations and its big returns for investors. Bernie was certainly a charmer and operator, and this is my second point. And it's a philosophical one. Some will disagree, some won't disagree, but it's puzzled me a little bit um, all the time. Because of the aggressive efforts by regulators, duped investors have actually gotten back a huge, if not a vast proportion of the money that was swindled and taken from them. Look it up. Now, had they invested that same money in the stock market, independent of Bernie Madoff, and held it till the period of 2008, geez, they could have been creamed, wiped out their portfolios in shreds, reduced sharply. We don't exactly know because it's clouded in certain confusion. Yet securities fraud of this scale at Bernie Madoff's business is wrong, it's immoral, it's shocking, it's illegal, and should be punished by the law. Many people were indeed hurt, and certainly through the early years of the Madoff empire meltdown. Finally, on Madoff, I have often wondered were there are grounds, humanitarian, legal, for some leniency for Bernard Madoff in his last sad days behind bars, where so much tragedy visited his family? A reported suicide and a death? I don't have the answer, but I suspect one reason was never brought up, and it was political, and of course, because of the serious nature of the crime, the mood of the country. Would have not accepted the release of Bernie Madoff. My second exhibit. You see, I knew Bernie very well. He liked me a lot. He gave me this to carry my uh, of beer home. You see it, Thomas? <laughs> Bernard L. Madoff. Okay. How am I being on this? <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't looked into this for a while. Oh my God. Jesus. I have to find the five dollars. <laughs> oh my God, Margaret! You tell me about this. There's a note from Bernie Madoff. It says, "Thank you, John, for all your business." Mm. Did you did we have money invested with Bernie Madoff? <laughs> oh God, God! Hope not. Okay. Anyway, I got that off. We got that. Out. I, I see. I was privileged to be. I went to all these trading conferences all over America. They would all. out all kinds of stuff: disting gizmos, um, stuff that you couldn't use to wash your brush your teeth, deodorant or something, perfume. And I mean, if anybody wants some, I'll give you my phone number. After it's like I have a whole store of stuff. But that's 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 kind of my prize, the Bernie Madoff one. I'm But it's in storage at the moment. Anyway, no. Here, I give the audience for my talk at Chatham Library my positive outlook for America from my perch as a media man who has the privilege of seeing many perspectives in America today. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. For many years, I have been a regular and frequent contributor and writer for the New York Post. I'm proud of my stories. I've Blood, sweat and tears have gone into them. One story worth mentioning was my exclusive coverage of how one major bank essentially planned to build poorer banking customers with new banking fees with very little or no prior notice of their change in policies to accomplish this deed. It was my scoop, and I had a great informant who, it's sort of like the Nixon thing, Deep Throat, he was my Deep Throat, uh, they could catch, They were going to catch these small fries uh, off the hop. The map worked out fine if you had a large and comfortable balance. But for small savers, it was a financial disaster. Then New York Attorney General Andrew Cuomo was so outraged. You imagine Cuomo getting outraged at the time. He launched an investigation and ultimately settled with this same said bank. He even called me to praise me for my thorough work and for my scoop. Thank you, Andrew. I, I feel sorry for really out at the moment, but we won't go there. Mm-hmm. You know who Andrew Cuomo is. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not know how much this settlement saved smaller savers, but I must guess it ranged in the millions. So much for beating up the fourth estate, the media class. In this case, we did change the world a wee bit for the better. I have never written stories about headless bodies in topless bars, but I have written about spirits and ghosts because I'm Irish. And I recently interviewed for the New York Post, the very intriguing and actually genuine, and I say that, genuine, Monsignor Stephen J. Rossetti on his new book, Diary of an American Exorcist. The story is online at the Post with the headline, US Priest, exorcisms on the rise as demons now haunt victims by text. Oh, my God. I mean, maybe that was that. A, oh, gee, that was, I think that was demons. Earlier, actually, yeah. The print version had something about America being demonically oppressed. Great headline. Not quite headless body style, but better than a headline that says, US priests tell us all to behave. New York Times. So, as you can imagine, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet, which is one reason that prompted me to launch my own podcast last year. It's called Dig Life Deep, and it's available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We're also up on YouTube or our own channel, Dig Life Deep. I ask you all to follow me after tonight. Maybe you're already do. We'll be launching our website in the coming days and uploading content over the next few weeks. So here are some of the, I hope I brought them. Yes, I did. Here are some of my recent episodes. Dig life deep. And uh, Elaine, you mentioned this one was, got your attention. Dr. Anna Lampke looks at ancient wisdom and new scientific research for treatment of addictions in a digital self-indulgent world, drowning our brains in dopamine nation, dopamine nation's, it's a great read. And she is one of my full of empathy and compassion for a, a, a problem in the world that is actually serious is drug overdose and addiction. Uh, Capitol Hill I to charter school. Uh, A.D. Altman, he wrote Animal Town. Timothy, Timothy J. Gordon, he's a Catholic author teacher, host rules for retrogrades. Rene Marino From Broadway and TV to Clint Eastwood's Jersey Boys, Marino was one of Yahoo Finance's top communication coaches to follow, and she's a native of New Jersey. Dick Beauvais talking about US housing prices at risk. uh, I interviewed a a very um, motivational, gentle, kind, uh, bright, energetic, uh, autistic priest who came out as autistic. And... um, he now will be teaching theology in some Catholic university in America soon. I think he's got a lot of the exams. He's got them. Father Matthew Schneider. Um, Martin Duggard. He's the author of Taking Paris and co-author with Bill O'Reilly and on, on the Killing Series and on and on and on. Uh, we have a lot of exciting guests coming up. We've Ray. I, I can never... I, I should be able to pronounce it. Aroya of Fox. He'll be on my show soon. And... Um, we have a best-selling author in time for, for Christmas. One of the side benefits of journalism is that access to other people's words. Even if you are some kind of fly in the wall, if you are lucky enough to get the mix and mingle with all classes and creeds, from the ultra-rich to the most impoverished, you also get a ringside view of the American dream writ large, warts and all. So that access may raise questions in the minds of the American public and you here tonight. What side are you on, Bern? Are you on the left, are you right, are you moderate? Where are you at, Bern? Well, we know bias comes up a lot in media, and I have no simple or straightforward answer. You might find it a cop-out, but it really isn't. I am on the side of the human race, and this planet, which is fragile, I am inside of the rich and the poor, the business people, the working people, the in-betweens, the the struggling American families, the masses of people on skid row, uh, the successful people, the happy families, the lonely and the, the infirm and the most vulnerable, from the single mom struggling to raise her family to the littlest of them all, the unborn baby in the womb. I do not like class division, Racial division, nor economic division, especially triggered by radical fringe ideologies. Is it is not what America was built upon. We are really all in this together. As a journalist, I must report the truths and present the established facts. Here are some interesting statistics. According to the World Bank, the US recently ranked number one in the world. Measured by nominal GDP, GDP per capita, per capita, and per capita, and other metrics. China was next. And if you, I, I, t- I printed out a chart, and of course, you probably have to measure purchasing power parity, as it's called, like what a dollar would buy back then. But just in, in nominal terms and dollar terms, back in 1820, that's a long ways back, GDP per capita in the United States was one thousand one hundred and fifty-seven, which was a pretty good lot back then. Um, by 1913, it was 5,000 and change. 1950, it rose to nine 9,000 and change, 1950. 1973, 16,000. 1990, 23,000. 1998, 27,000. And today it's over 47, 48. I, I, that'll come up in a minute. But anyway, the point I'm making is our, we have huge GDP. More than four decades ago, the average size of the new home in the United States increased in size by more than 1,000 square feet from an average of 1,666 to close to 2,500 square feet. We've all heard of the McMansion, so i probably skews, the, skews it somewhat. <laughs> The average household has more appliances, more TVs, bigger screens, more gadgets, more choice of food, more leisure time. We're gaining more leisure time. A higher standard of living. Has anybody here been to ShopRite or Wegmans recently? Well, oh, you'd need a golf cart to get around with all the food in the aisles. To be sure, there are problems, serious problems, and history is soaked in the blood and tears in the evolution of our great republic. Yes, the US has been convulsed by internal and external wars through this history, from the Civil War to Civil Rights, but we've made progress. For example, we've campaigned to end segregation and bring our people closer together. Congress has passed several laws to protect and ensure the rights of minorities. Poverty can no longer be defined in the same terms as it was 100 years ago before the enactment of anti-poverty campaigns and federal aid aid programs alongside the huge and often underestimated work of charities and churches. The introduction of the social security program may have been one of the most Important benefits for the older population in retirement. Now, I like statistics, but I don't want to you to numb you to death with it that your eyes glaze over because you can get enough statistics sometimes. But here's an astonishing stat. The Fed printed $6 trillion in the past 18 months to prop up business and consumers. So the US economy did not plunge into a deep and serious recession. depression it worked more or less history will tell us yet all the time we read about and listen to reports of mayhem and gridlock in washington we have cancel culture woke culture a few dodgy tycoons we have neighborhoods on the verge of collapse we have kids who go to bed at night hungry we have our culture wars and our economic problems from rising prices and a soaring national debt, now moving closer to $30 trillion. Middle-class struggling and at times even shrinking. Inflation. The official inflation rate is now 6.2%. I just saw that on the Wall Street Journal today. And that shocks me because the US money supply has grown 30% with stimulus spending, So I I kind of wonder, why is it 6% if money supply grew five times that? Part of the answer is that this inflation, they use the consumer price index, excludes a lot of other items and does not take account of assets like stocks and homes. Debt, riots on the streets, COVID, gridlock in Washington, supply chain bottlenecks, the opioid epidemic, soaring crime nightmares at our ports and at our southern border, fears about climate change, and more on the social side, we have broken homes and broken families, divorces, old people who have died in nursing homes, little unborn babies, the most vulnerable of human beings who die in the womb in the name of choice. There's a loneliness epidemic. There's a rise in anxiety and depression, which actually would be a good reason to play my most recent podcast about uh, addictions in America. And we get into the maybe what's at the core of why we're seeing this, 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 this uh, drift in our society. Byrne, I thought you were talking about the American dream. Can money fix our problems? If money was the answer that all our problems in America could surely be resolved, or a good lot of them, because you just have to look at the extraordinary amounts of spending already put into fixing, fixing our economic ills. and some of it is certainly needed. We do need some government spending. I'm not that foolish. The real problem America is now facing, I suggest to you, everybody listening, and sitting down, is not really any of the above in a broad sense. The real problem is an existential crisis rooted in a lack of purpose by many sections of our society, a lack of faith, a lack of belief in some higher power, God for many of us, including me, as we can see in the steady decline in religious practice and the corruption of much of our civil society. There is also a lack of belief in the American dream by many. In some ways, it is a breakdown in the moral order. Burn, you're drinking too much Guinness. You're mixing up your words here. Get optimistic. I want to hear you. Which reminds me, a little side note here. Uh, Joe O'Malley in Dublin went to the doctor doctor's office in Dublin one day and said to the doctor, do you treat... An alcoholic's doctor. Do you treat them? I'm an alcoholic. The doctor replied, Of course we do. Joe responded, Get your coat on. I'm fecking skint. You're buying me a pint. <laughs> Bit of light, really. Optimism, optimism. Burn, <laughs> we're still talking about the American dream. Yes, I am talking about the American dream. And I look forward at this juncture in time, November the 11th, 2021, to better days ahead. As we know, the American dream is rooted in the Declaration of Independence, proclaiming that all men are created equal with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The US Constitution promotes freedom in the preamble to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And in my heart, sincerely, I think we will emerge stronger What some may see as these dark and uncertain moments. The American spirit deep down is optimistic, resilient, and has learned the lessons of history. America has an amazing productive economic capacity and engine. We can knuckle under and grapple with our debt and our economic issues, providing, yes, providing, the will of the people can be rallied. My bet is on a brighter and promising American future. I have interviewed literally hundreds of business people in America over my career, some of them immigrants from places spelled with a C, you can guess, or an R, who came to this country poor as church mice. And one thing that characterized many of them, in my mind, was their insatiable drive for success, their hunger and fire in their belly, And the promise of the American dream and its support for all those who dare dream big. This country produces more unique small business success stories than anywhere I can think of on the planet. You all know I am a romantic at heart, Irish are good for that sort of thing, but I will say this, America has been exceptionally good to my family, both my immediate and my extended family all over America and in Ireland. We owe it our love and affection and deepest gratitude. God bless you, America, and God protect us all. I will conclude by first saying America can indeed become the shining city upon the hill once again. To wrap a bow around it, I will finish with this sweet, gentle, romantic, nostalgic, whatever word you want, attributed to an Irish-American mom, and it's called American Reconciliation. May the sadness of our past empower the possibilities of our future, where we flourish as one nation connected by the potential of our shared dreams. Thank you very much. Now, I guess we have time for some mm-hmm. questions. Did you all like that? Will you feel a bit more optimistic now? Mm-hmm. The American dream is wonderful. I mean, we just have to we have to keep our vision, our hopes, and not surrender to cynicism and um, defeat. That's all it is. Fear nothing but fear itself, as some statesman said. I can take one or two questions. I could do anything. I could do a jig. Sinead could do the jig. jig. Sinead's an Irish step dancer. I have one question. Yes. Um, making the transition from what sounded like a local paper in Ireland and then so it seemed like, like how long of a transition was it to the financial world and all the financial reporting you did? Um, that's a good question, uh, the culture in Ireland back then, uh, in newspapering, you started typically with a provincial, it's kind of like that in America, you want to get to the New York market, you work in the provinces, you know, the, uh, whatever, Midlands or whatever, Midwest. So we started in local newspaper, and then you graduated up to the, to the Dublin papers, um i had always a kind of an i have a bit of uh, i studied business in ireland a little bit so i had a little bit of knowledge and i was always fascinated by business um when i was with the irish echo i said it's time to move on and i think actually it might have been the irish voice i said it's time to move on go mainstream so i sent my application to mcgraw hill securities week to um a financial publication you know we had to say why they wanted to hire you you know and i spoke in my Irish brogue and everything and I was interviewed and I told the guy "I, I, you know I never covered the stock exchange or Nasdaq or jeez trading bonds and everything you must be joking are you sure you want to give me a shot here John they love you they're all Irish down in New York stock exchange back then anyway (laughs) so that was you know that was kind of how we did it It sort of sort of like a a baptism by fire the other thing I wanted to say was there was two hires at the time and the other gentleman had to speak you know his wife he wanted to hire him and he was from bensonhurst and he had a strong italian sort of brogue and um, dan coloruso who now works he's been at bloom he's been all over you might see his name popping up it was dan and myself and then michael oprent so the first six months literally was a sweat bath I was like, I went home at night, I was in a sauna, you know, my God, what am I doing here? You know, this is getting crazy. So I read up all the, I did a lot of human interest pieces. And then I, you know, at a necessity, I tried to learn how stock trading worked, how the back office worked, um, the difference between a stock and a bond. Um, you read all the different manuals. I talked to experts, operations, technology. Um, so it took a while. May I ask, uh, I understand that you knew Bernie Madoff. Yes. Did anything about him say thief? Um, people have asked me that, and he was a brilliant impostor. clearly in hindsight. But I remember I had two things that I remember from my encounters with Bernie Madoff. One is the day I went to their office to interview Bernie and Peter. And I had my tape recorder on and I'd be writing copious notes. I remember at one stage when I wasn't looking, he caught me, he threw this funny eye over at me, you know, oh, I the barn is up here. Maybe he's going to catch me or something. It was, it was, it was one of those strange, um, surreal kind of moments. I didn't know what he was trying to express in that expression, but was it sent a shiver down my f- spine. As I was... Filing my story and finishing it up uh, in the office, the phone rang one day and um, I picked up and I could hear what sounded like the whir of helicopter rings or whatever you call them in the background. And the gentleman said, Hi, it's Bernie here. John, how are you doing? Great, Bernie, what's up? John, I want you to get the story straight, you know, because a couple of years ago, somebody really screwed me over, you know. Um, (laughs) he oh, <laughs> Somebody wrote a story a couple of years previous to that uh, questioning Bernie Madoff's business model, maybe not the market making, so there was rumours and innuendo, but he was a brilliant cool, calm and collected um, they, they call him a psychopath in hindsight, right? Or whatever the psychological term is, but that was his brilliant and genius that he could convince people and make them his best friend, go to the you know, the Jewish community in Miami, he became their best friend and he'd hand over the money and then somebody would want money and then he had to pour more, more money. That's what the Ponzi scheme. You have to keep taking the money. In 2008, the stock market crashed. So you couldn't generate those double-digit returns. I hope you're all going to follow and um, because and I'll also get onto my website You know, next week because we're going to set up a newsletter and we put you all in the newsletter. Thank, you, well, thank Karen. you very very much. much. Thank, you. thank you everybody for coming to the library, and we hope to see you here again in person, virtually, <laughs> any way you feel comfortable with. Thank you. Well, thank Actually, you, for thank you in for the, the building. building. Thank you, Elaine. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email byrndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com Subscribe for free.